Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you would like to support the Box of Oddities, we would be eternally grateful. Become a premium subscriber. Go to theboxofoddities.com and get signed up. You will get ad-free episodes. You'll get them a day early. You'll get a bonus episode every month. And you'll get access to the Box of Oddities back channel. Direct contact to us. And we appreciate it so much. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So can we talk about what happened uh, a moment ago before we walked into the studio to start recording when you crumpled to the floor and started rolling around on the ground yelling, no, no. I mean, that's an exaggeration. No, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) I thought you had just found out that a loved one had perished in a fiery car crash or something. And and in reality, that that wasn't the situation. No, no. Everyone I love is fine. So what was it exactly that caused you to crumple into a heap on the floor? You can say it. It's fine. We're among friends. I realize my sweatpants don't have pockets. Yeah. I got new sweatpants and I really like them. Well, here's the thing is I've had the same two pairs of sweatpants for like two years. Right. And I love these sweatpants. Mm-hmm. They're, mm-hmm. they're great sweatpants. Right. Um, and I frequently will share... With you, my love of these sweatpants. They're just the right weight. They are not fleecy on the inside. They're great. They're all the things you ever hoped for in a sweatpant. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they are starting to wear. So I've been on the lookout for some replacement sweatpants Mm -hmm. that would make me feel the same way. Yeah. And so... (laughs) So I the other day, I did find some sweatpants that I invested in and... um, I went to put my phone in my pocket, and I realized that these these sweatpants don't have don't have pockets. Now picture this. I'm not exaggerating. Cat is lying on the floor. Well, it was just it was I wasn't expecting it. I just mindlessly went to put my phone in the pocket that was not there. It was a very disappointing moment for me. 
Are you okay? Do you need a grief counselor? I'm okay. I'll sew pockets on them for you if you if you want. And I don't even know how to sew, but that's how much I love you. Wow. Yeah. I bet that would end up looking really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Since you said you would po- sew pockets on them. Yeah. So naturally, I assume that the new material would be on the outside. On the outside. Of, the sw- yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was thinking like a nice gingham. Yeah. So just a square yeah. is what you're. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, I would it. I would taper it at the bottom. I mean, oh. I, I'm not I'm not a heathen. God. Anywho, so let me do my story. Yes, please. Okay. Here we go. Actually, now that I'm looking at this, uh, the way that I wrote the opening line sounds a little bit like a movie trailer. Oh, really? Yeah. In a world. (laughs) Very similar to that. (laughs) The rise has officially started. A time is quickly approaching when humanity will be teetering on the edge of annihilation at the hands of our robot overlords. Oh, wow. I wrote that. It's very dramatic. Thanks. Yeah. It's, I wrote that because I was feeling overwhelmed because it was just announced this past week that uh, scientists here in the United States have created the very first living machines by assembling cells from African clawed frogs into tiny little biological robots that move around under their own power. I'm not making this up. They just announced that like Monday of last week. They're like self-sufficient robots. Yes. That they move around on their own accord. Yes. But they're not made out of like metal. They're made out of um, organic material. These are bio robots and they're real. I don't understand. Okay, go ahead. Michael Levin, the director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University in uh, Massachusetts, says they are entirely new life forms. They are living, programmable organisms. Are they in the shape of frogs? No, they are not in the shape of frogs. They're tiny, tiny, tiny little things. Research co-lead Joshua Bongard, uh, who's a robotic expert at uh, the University of Vermont, said that uh, these are novel living machines. They're neither a traditional robot, or robot as I like to say, nor a known species of animal. It's a new class of artifact, a living programmable organism. What could possibly go wrong? Geez, can't imagine. We just learned this week that there is a robot hall of fame. That shocked me. Now we have to add that to our our list of must-visits. Thanks, Jeopardy. So I don't know, like most of you, when I think about robots, I think of a hulking metallic man with clothes dryer ventilation hoses for arms, just clanking about my kitchen, making me a delicious omelet. But these are different. No, when I picture a robot, the first thing that comes to my mind is C-3PO. See, with me, it's uh, the like lost, lost in, in space, space robot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it must be like the robot that's first introduced to you as, this is a robot. Sure. And when I was a kid, all the robot toys were modeled after, you know, either Robbie the Robot or the Robbie the Robot knockoff from Lost in Space. But both of them had clothes dryer ventilation hose arms. (laughs) Well, these, these guys don't have those, but they are robots nonetheless. They meet the definition. Roboticists tend to favor... Usually when they're making robots, metals or plastics or polymers because of the strength Mm -hmm. and the durability. But um, many of the researchers see the benefits in making robots from uh, biological tissue. 
because in this case, if these little guys become damaged or injure themselves, they can heal their wounds. Oh, okay. Okay. And once their task is done, they fall apart just as like a natural organism would decay. So there's no debris. It's biodegradable. Wow. How are they programmed? I mean, how does that work? They have, I mean, they must have like a motherboard or God, I'm yeah. an idiot when no. it comes to this shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Futurism.com says to build the robots, the uh, team used living cells from frog embryos and assembled them into uh, primitive beings. They're neither a traditional robot, nor are they a species of animal. They're about a millimeter in length. They're designed virtually by a supercomputer running a, um, an evolutionary algorithm that they, that they have written. And uh, the computer tested thousands of 3D designs for rudimentary life forms inside this simulation. The scientists then built a handful of designs which were able to propel themselves forward or fulfill a basic task inside the simulation using <laughs> tweezers and cauterizing tools. Oh, lordy. So we're making these intelligent little biological life forms and then giving them weapons. I don't see how this is a good idea. What do they look like, though? What, what shape are they in? What are they... Because you said they're not frog shaped. No. Are they, and they're not typical like robot shaped. They're not shaped like dudes with ventilator they, vent vent hose arms. No, they don't have the vent hose arms. No, they um they they vary in in design uh, depending upon what their intended task is supposed to be. Smart. So some have little pincher hands. Some have like a scoop at the front oh, okay. to collect things. Some are just designed to move forward and move backward. Each design is tested in this virtual environment. It's similar to how a computer works in the sense that it's binary. Instead of ones and zeros, they use skin cells and heart cells. And the difference is skin cells are just more a protective uh, glob of mass, whereas the heart cells contract and expand because they, they beat. Right. So, so what they do is they design these little things to propel forward, for example, but they put all the heart cells in the back that's going to, when they contract, it makes them go. Kind of like a snake moves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very similar to that. And then when they when they test all of these, the best performers are used to spawn more designs, which themselves are then put through the paces. So it's self-evolutionary. Huh. Scientists waited for the computer to, uh, to, to churn out 100 generations before picking just a small handful of designs to build in the, la in the lab. Um, they, you know obviously had to use very, very small tools. Um, they sculpt early stage skin and heart cells scraped from the emb embryos of those uh, African clawed frogs. Have you ever seen an African clawed frog? I don't think so. It sounds horrifying. I think it sounds amazing. I'm Googling it right now. Okay. The source of the cells led the scientists to call their creation xenobots because the official term for the African clawed frog is Xenopus lavis or something Latin. Oh, he just looks like a frog. He's just froggy. Researchers wrote in the Proceedings of the National Academic of Sciences describing how they set the robots loose in dishes of water to keep the frog cells alive. Some of them, as they were programmed, 
crept along in straight lines. Others looped around in circles or teamed up with others to form a mass that would move forward. They were teaming up. This is the beginning of the end. Yep. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a scary thought, but um, at least they're just little small things in a dish for now. For now. These are very small, but ultimately the plan is to scale them up. Of course. Said uh, Dr. Levin, one of the researchers. Xenobots might be built with blood vessels, nervous systems, and sensory cells to form rudimentary eyes. By building them out of mammalian cells, they could live on dry land. Well, yeah. Stop it right now. Don't do anymore. For, for the love of God. This is terrible. This is your last chance. <laughs> Look, for, uh, like you, we don't know. There's so much that we don't know and understand about life. Right. And consciousness and sentientness. We're, you're messing with stuff that you don't understand. Right. It's very simple right now. You've got essentially the skin cell, which is a zero, and you've got the heart cell, which is a one. Mm -hmm. And so they make these really primitive little things, but they are doing what they're programmed to do. Now they want to scale it up, perhaps use mammal cells and, and build rudimentary eyes. Um, by building them with these cells, experts say if they use blood cells or nerve cells, these little things could gain cognitive capabilities. Right. And feel. It's, it's not even what they could do to us. It's what we're doing to them. If they can feel and their only purpose is to, to do the task that mm. we make them to and then they're like destroyed or whatever, that's just it's vile. Right. There's a I lot mean, of there are a lot of ethical questions involved. Certainly. The Guardian says researchers aren't concerned about the xenobots no, taking over no. anytime soon, which is why they probably will. Um, they say, however, that the work, this is the reason they want to do it. And, and, and these are lofty goals and, and noble ones. To say, they, they want to um, achieve more than just creating these little squiggly robots. The aim, quote, the aim is to understand the software of life, Levin said. If you think about birth defects, cancer, Age-related diseases, all of these things could be solved if we knew how to make biological structures to have ultimate control over growth and form. And again, these little primitive robots that they've built out of heart cells and skin cells, because the heart cells spontaneously contract and relax, they behave like miniature engines that drive the robot along until their energy reserve runs out. The cells have enough fuel inside of them right now to survive seven to 10 days before they expire and, uh, and decompose, mm -hmm. essentially. So just to break it down, scientists use an evolutionary algorithm to create thousands of random designs, simulating passive skin cells and heart cells, which contract. The algorithm asks the designs to achieve a task assigned by the scientists, like, like walking forward. The most promising designs are then built from living cells scraped from frog embryos. They've done this. It works. The combination of skin cells and heart cells designed in a specific pattern have been successful in, in completing rudimentary tasks. In tests outlined in a paper published in the Journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, some were able to push tiny little pellets into a central location on the dish. They programmed them to push all the stuff to the center of the dish. Mm. Others successfully carried objects around 
very small ones, of course. Okay, yeah, of course, very small pebbles. They're, they're in a very early stage of development. It's possible, though, that more complex versions could be used in the future. And one of the things that they want to do is use them for cleaning up microplastics in the ocean. I love this idea. This is a good idea because they eat all the plastic, digest it, and then they die and decompose organically, which is a pretty cool idea. Another main reason they want to do this is nanosurgery. They want to inject these things into us. Like say you've got heart issues. Mm. They're thinking they could inject these into your heart and they will go inside the um, the ventricles and the valves and eat the plaque out of your That's heart. Very interesting. And if they can perform tasks, yes. they could, in theory, perform surgery without cutting through yes. your exterior. That's true. This is way down the road, but sure. this is what they're thinking they can accomplish. Uh, and and not only that, they could be used in uh, delivering drugs. To a patient mm. more efficiently. But does it have to be organic or 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 half frog in this case in order to be able to do that really? I mean, couldn't you just like make a tiny robot and put a tiny Dennis Quaid inside of it and, <laughs> and get it done that way? These are dreams we all have, sweetie. But I think we have to start somewhere. All right. On the project page, it says, if we could make 3D biological forms on demand, we could repair birth defects, reprogram tumors into normal tissue, regenerate after traumatic injury and degenerative, uh, degenerative disease, and defeat aging as highly regenerative organisms like Planaria do. It goes on to say these living machines could also be used to build complex organs and appendages like eyeballs and hands as well as improved communications, robotics, and non-neurocentric artificial intelligence. Here we go. I just, I think that a lot of these are great goals for sure, but we're not great. You can just end the sentence right yeah, there. Yeah, and, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, we're not great at doing this thing that we're all doing now as it is. Right. So how does it benefit us? all seven billion of us to, for all of us to live a lot longer when we can't do what we're doing now well? That's a question I don't feel um, qualified to answer. I'm just saying, I understand, hey, uh, this person to me is not well and mm -hmm. I want them fixed. Mm -hmm. That immediate personal bag there. Fine. Okay. But... On a large scale, which is, you know, the reality of things, there's it's a terrible idea for well, we're, us we're, to live any longer than we already we're do. We're running out of room is what you're saying. And uh, if the birth at rate the continues <laughs> at its current rate and we extend the uh, life expectancy of, of people, then, yeah, we're, we're running out of space. But they're not concerned about that. Uh, there, there are some concerns, though. They're concerned that um, these things could be programmed to die at a certain point by modulating how much food reserves they're given. The biological machines then could be theoretic, uh, theoretically weaponized. And uh, it's possible that artificial intelligence that designs their parent models could be programmed with uh, really bad intents. Mm. It's impossible to know what the applications will be for any new technology. So we're really only guessing, said Joshua Bongard, who is, this again, this senior researcher on the team at the University of Vermont. 
Sam Kriegman, a PhD student working on the project, said, What's important to me is that this is public so we can have a discussion as a society and policymakers can decide what is the best course of action. Thomas Douglas, a senior research fellow at the Oxford uh, Center for Practical Ethics, said, quote, There are interesting ethical questions about the moral status of these xenobots. Mm. At what point would they become beings with interests that ought to be protected? I think they'd acquire moral significance only if they included neural tissue that enabled some kind of mental life, such as the ability to experience pain. Well, when you consider that we already have a ton of examples of creatures that do experience pain that we test on willy-nilly as it is, <laughs> yeah. why do we why is it important that we consider that in this situation? We don't consider the cats whose skulls are being drilled into at universities. We don't consider the monkeys that we shave and inject crap into. We don't consider the rabbits that we uh, feed poisons until half of them die. You know, I mean, we're... Well, I don't feel as though I'm qualified to answer that question. <laughs> Many have a more liberal um, idea of moral status. They think that all living creatures have interests that should be given more, uh, some moral consideration. For these people, uh, difficult questions could arise about whether these xenobots should be classified as living creatures or machines. Mm. They are biological. They are organic. But yet, at this stage anyway, they're just cells that have been programmed to do certain things. And How far along does it go before we say we we have to start treating these things like living creatures? Right. Live. And if they're if it's just a clump of cells, then fine. But if it becomes at what point do does yeah. it you know reach the monkey lab we don't care anymore. Right level. Factory yeah. farm. I don't know. You know, I, I mean. Know. This is all new. This has just been released. This information, this study's just been released. I, so I this just, is the beginning of the end, everyone. Congratulations. You were, like, you were here at the birth of the robot <laughs> invasion. I just feel like these questions should be asked and answered before we start creating things like this. I agree. Thank you. I got my information from The Guardian, Futurism.com, The Nerdist, and TechRadar.com. The robots are here. <laughs> and they're made of living tissue. Who would have thunk? And now, that thing in the middle. That thing in the middle from Freaks, a box of oddities page. Group. Shit. <laughs> I believe in you. Yeah. That thing in the middle again coming from the Freaks of Facebook. <laughs> a box of oddities group. That thing in the middle, again, coming from our uh, Facebook group, Freaks, a box of oddities group. Is that right? Did I say that right? I don't know. There's too many words in it. James writes, hello, fellow freaks. Today at work, the question came up, what was the weirdest or freakiest thing you found when you moved into a new place? Number five, Sethy writes, the apartment we moved into in Kissimmee, Florida, the previous tenants had painted on the wall and glow in the dark paint. Fuck off, bitches. And we didn't see it until the lights went out. Number four, Sonia writes, the weirdest thing I ever found when I moved into a new place was a crackhead in the attic, a real living person, high on crack, hiding in my attic. Number three, Brittany wrote, we found a Polaroid of the previous owner, a retired police officer in his glory days, wearing a pair of short shorts. Yeah. 
That was the only thing left in the attic. Also, an entire cabinet in the dining room filled with old Pringles cans. Wow, what a really interesting collection. One had a contest on it that ended in 1996. Excellent. We moved there in 2015. Number two, Sam writes, The place I lived before where I live now. When we moved in there, there was a strange green apron with mystery stains on it. We assumed it was used for murder or murder-adjacent activities. (laughs) And number one, Rebecca says, uh, I'm going to go with a crackhead that pretended to be a cat in order to gain entrance into my apartment. (laughs) She said she heard her cat meowing and went and opened the door, and a crackhead tried to scootaloot into into her apartment. That's so creepy. That is creepy AF. When I moved into my apartment years ago, I found colloidal silver hidden in the air conditioner, which was very weird. That's right. You showed that to me. We looked it up. It had something to do with enemas or something, something. right? Something. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. It was weird. Just a strange place to hide things inside the air conditioner. And then there was the house that I bought in foreclosure when you and I first started to, uh, well, hang out. Spend time together. Yeah. And uh, the attic was full of old antique books, and they had names signed in them, Mm -hmm. and they were from your ancestors. Yeah. That's when we knew it was meant to be. That's right. Synchronicity. You can't fight it, bitches. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the podcast with that minty, fresh taste and still only one and a half calories. This is The Box of Oddities. We love you freaks. Kendall sent this message. My husband and I were dressed and ready to go out for a lovely evening of dinner and theater. Having been burgled in the past, we turned on a nightlight and then put the cat in the backyard. When the Uber arrived, we walked out the front door, and our rather tubby cat scooted between our legs inside and then ran up the stairs because our cat likes to chase the parakeet, and we didn't want to leave them unchaperoned, so my husband ran inside to retrieve her and put her in the backyard again. Because I didn't want the Uber driver to know that our house was going to be empty all evening, which is smart, I explained to him that my husband would be out momentarily as he was just bidding goodnight to my mother. A few minutes later, he got in the Uber all hot and bothered and said, to my growing horror and amusement, as the car pulled away, Sorry it took so long, but that stupid bitch was hiding under the bed and I had to poke her in the ass with a coat hanger to get her to come out. She tried to take off, so I grabbed her by the neck and wrapped her in a blanket so she wouldn't scratch me like she did last time. But it worked. I hauled her fat ass down the stairs and put her out in the backyard. She better not shit in our vegetable garden again. It was a quiet ride to the theater. (laughs) I don't know if that's real, but because it's such a beautiful story. Regardless, that made me laugh. (laughs) What you got for me? What what you what what you what you got for me? What 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 you got for me? Today we're gonna talk about Ken McElroy. He was born Uh, June 1st, 1934. He was the 15th of 16 children. Oh, my God. More specifically, we're going to talk about his murder. So Ken McElroy was born to a very poor migrant tenant farming couple named Tony and Mabel. Um, They had moved uh, around a bit before settling on the outside of Skidmore, Missouri. So Ken had dropped out of school before he reached high school. Uh, By 13 years old, he was already familiar uh, with the cops around the county. Did he call them coppers? Because I imagine he called them coppers. Uh, He may have. Hey, copper. Because it was the 1930s. Sure. But he was only uh, six at the end of the 1930s. So he 
I mean, probably would have picked up different vernacular as he got a little bit well, older. That, that was probably more 30s, but if he lived in a rural area, he may have just have heard it recently true, in the 40s. It does take some time take some for time. Sure. a language to, to mm-hmm. move. And... Especially, you know, pre-internet. Absolutely. All right. So... So anyway, uh, he quickly established a reputation as a uh, kind of a a shit kid. Uh, He was a raccoon hunter. He was a cattle rustler, small-time thief. He was a womanizer. And for more than two decades, he was suspected of being involved in the theft of grain, gasoline, alcohol, antiques, livestock, whatever he could steal from you, he was going to steal from you. So would you be able to describe him as a flim-flam man? Oh, he seemed very flim-flammy. Good, because I want to say flim-flam man. I understand. It's fun. Cool. So anyway, according to BuzzFeed's Unsolved, McElroy was said to have been seriously injured in an accident while working on a construction site. A heavy steel beam dropped on him, uh, which is interesting because that also happened to my dad. But anyway. It was a barn beam, though. It was a barn beam. Right. So weird because my dad was also born on June 1st. That's really weird. Right? Wow. And his mom had a ton of kids. Anyway, uh, the accident led to severe chronic pain and possibly some brain damage, which might have, uh, according to some, contributed to his uh, attitude slash behavior. Flim flam manniness. Yes. Okay. Flim flamminess. Flim flim flamminess. Mm. Uh, but considering that he started out as a shit kid at the age of 13, police already knew who he was, mm-hmm. you know, it may have exacerbated it, but well, it certainly wasn't the cause. So he was terrible and avoided conviction when charges were brought against him 21 times. 21 times? Yeah. Um, he had a lawyer named Richard Jean McFadden, uh, who was very skilled and uh, ran rings around inexperienced prosecutors. And uh, also, keep in mind, another reason that they had a hard time making any sort of charges stick was because of uh, McElroy's intimidation tactics. So often witnesses would refuse to testify because he intimidated them. He would follow his targets uh, through parking lots or to their home. He would just park outside their homes. Mm. Uh, You know, it it was very creepy. Uh, There was one instance where a farmer caught Ken stealing horses. Uh, He filed charges against him and then ended up withdrawing those charges after uh, McElroy smashed him across the face with a rifle. Well, he sounds like a fun guy. He fathered more than 10 children with different women. His last wife, whose name was Trina McLeod, uh, she was 12 when he started wooing her. Uh, And we use the word wooing in the most disgusting way that you can possibly imagine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, She was in eighth grade and he would follow her school bus and honk until the school bus driver would pull over and uh, let her off the bus so she could go with him. Boy, those were different days. Yeah. She became pregnant when she was 14 years old. Ken was in his late 30s. God. She uh, was not able to continue with school, and she went to live with McElroy and his third wife, Alice. Hmm. McElroy divorced Alice and married Trina in order to escape the statutory rape charges. Okay. So after 
Trina had their baby uh, like two weeks later, she and Alice fled to Trina's mother's home and uh, her mother and stepfather's home. McElroy allegedly responded by burning down their house and shooting their dog. Mm-hmm. McElroy also shot a man named Romaine Henry. Henry uh, challenged him for shooting weapons on his property. He was like, hey, you can't shoot weapons here. This is my property. You must leave. And so uh, McElroy shot him twice in the stomach with a shotgun. Uh, Henry survived to testify against McElroy. How do you survive being shot in the stomach twice with a shotgun? I don't know. Uh, somehow McElroy was found not guilty. Probably because he intimidated the witnesses. That would be my guess. Henry personally testified at the trial. Wow. That this man shot me twice in the stomach. Mm -hmm. Not guilty. Wow. Wow. So on April 25, 1980, there's a guy named Ernest Bowman Camp, and he owns a general store. And a clerk had asked McElroy's eight-year-old daughter to return a piece of candy that she had not paid for. And apparently, McElroy found out about this and became enraged. So he came to the store. He threatened Bo, which is what they called Bo and Camp, and shot him in the neck at close range mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a shotgun. Mm. Bo and Camp survived. Wow, this guy must have had terrible guns or aim. So the call went out that Bowen Camp had been shot, and state police corporal uh, Richard Stratton, who knew McElroy from previous goings on, and in that instance, he had threatened to shoot a state trooper with a shotgun. Um, he knew... McElroy's typical moves, so he waited on a back road near the Kansas border, um, and McElroy found himself handcuffed and charged with assault. So shortly after that, uh, that police officer's wife, whose name was Margaret, was headed to church, and she saw a strange truck in her driveway. It was fucking McElroy. He pointed a shotgun at Margaret. She told uh, A&E Real Crime. I didn't know what to do. I got in the car. I was shaking so bad. Uh, she put the car in reverse. McElroy began backing out, too, and then tailed Margaret until she was able to radio for help. She said, I think he treated the whole town of Skidmore that way. He was a bully and did whatever he wanted and threatened people if they threatened to take action. Again, McElroy successfully appealed the conviction and was released on bond. Unbelievable. After which, he was engaged in a harassment campaign against Bowen Camp and anyone who offered to support the Bowen Camp family, including the town's church and its minister. He appeared at a local bar, the D&G Tavern, armed with a rifle and a bayonet and later threatened to kill Bowen Camp like he, uh, he failed to do the first time. So the next day, it's July 10, 1981, there was a meeting at the town hall. Uh, just down the, the way from the D&G Tavern. Mm -hmm. As many as 60 Skidmore residents attended, including the mayor and the sheriff. And basically, they they felt like the system had failed them, and they needed to figure out what to do about this issue. McElroy was a menace, and he was not meeting consequences. And so 
the sheriff at the meeting suggested that the neighborhood create a neighborhood watch program so that they all figure out a way to keep in greater contact with each other so they'd kind of know his whereabouts and what he was doing. And <sighs> That sounds like a smart strategy. During the meeting, they discovered that uh, or, or someone reported that McElroy and Trina had actually just arrived at the D&G Tavern. So everyone kind of disbanded. The sheriff uh, headed out of town in his police cruiser. And the, the rest of the meeting people decided that they would tootle their way down to the tavern en masse. The bar was filled completely with people. Uh, they all kept an eye on McElroy and, you know, were talking about continuing to talk about what to do about this situation. McElroy finished his drinks. He purchased a six-pack of beer, left the bar, and got into his pickup truck with Trina. Trina claims to have seen someone pull a rifle from the back of a truck and take aim at McElroy. Shots were fired. It shattered the truck's windows. And according to Mental Floss, the shooting proceeded for a full 20 seconds. During that time, someone helped Trina get out of the truck and get inside a bank for safety. And McElroy was killed where he sat, inside his truck. Shell casings from at least two different guns were found at the scene. It was more than a watchdog group, wasn't it? Well, those shots were fired from somewhere within that crowd of about 60 people. Yeah, and nobody said anything. Nobody called for an ambulance. Of course they didn't. You reap what you sow, motherfucker. So, <laughs> wow. Sorry. So retired Missouri State Highway Patrol Trooper Dan Boyer told A&E Real Crime uh, he was out when he got the call that there had been a shooting in Skidmore. And he showed up to a very mm, dark scene. The rear window was shot out as well as the front. Part of McElroy's teeth were on the dashboard. Gross. Uh, in all, there were 46 potential witnesses to the shooting, including Trina McElroy, who you know was in the truck. Only Trina claimed to identify the gunman. She said that it was D&G owner Del Clement who was one of the shooters. But uh, Mental Floss writes, there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime and no one to corroborate her story. Hmm. Despite the fact that the shooting occurred in broad daylight with several dozen people watching, everyone there claims they didn't see a thing. Although three separate grand juries were convened and later the FBI investigated when local authorities when local authorities failed to make any progress, not a single person was ever charged with killing Ken McElroy. And this was back in the 80s that this happened? It was 81. 81. Wow. His murder is still unsolved. I'm going to guess it remains that way because I don't think anybody really cares about Ken McElroy. See, Banjo he, don't give a shit. Banjo sure as hell doesn't. <laughs> so uh, there was a book written in 88 about McElroy's murder. It was called In Broad Daylight by Harry McLean. And that was adapted into a made-for-TV movie. There was also uh, Ralph Servers Without Mercy, which won a grand jury prize for Best Picture. 
at the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival. Oh, wow. And that film portrays the last six days of McElroy's life. And uh, the case was the inspiration for No One Saw a Thing, which is a 2019 television documentary miniseries on Sundance TV, which is how I found this story. And it's incredibly interesting. I got my information from Bustle, BuzzFeed, a and Wikipedia, of course. Incredible story. Mm. And I can't imagine the the fortitude it takes for an entire town to go, oh. Well, 50 years of this bullshit's enough is probably the thought in everybody's head. He's bullied us. He's shot us. He's gotten away with it all. I wonder what happened to his attorney who got him off with all these charges. That's an interesting question. Hmm. We'll have to look into that. Yeah. I would really like to watch that doc. Let's it go. Let's it go. looks great. Let's go walk it right now. Watch okay. it right now. Fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us again. We love you guys. Check out our website for anything Box of Oddities related, our live shows, merch, all that stuff, theboxofoddities.com. And you can get a hold of us, too, with contact information there as well. Absolutely. Um, you can also support the Box of Oddities by way of our premium channel at the Himalaya app. There you get all kinds of bonus stuff. And you can, uh, that back channel that you have access to, you can find some fun, interesting extras, too. Yep. And, and that's also available on our website. You can just go to theboxofoddities.com and follow the links. Pretty easy. We love you guys, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until that time, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Just coffee, immunity gummies, and cinnamon rolls is apparently not the ideal <laughs> combination of nutrients for a morning. Yeah, you need some bourbon to go with that. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.